What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because progress happens just beyond your comfort zone. How does some risk-free profit sound? That's the promise and the premise of the consignment business, getting paid to sell other people's stuff. To help school me on how this all works is Megan Church from pineappleconsignment.com and at pineappleconsignment on Instagram. Megan, welcome to the Side Hustle Show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You bet. So stick around in this one to hear how you can get started right away, how Megan sources inventory to sell, and some of the creative ways she's found to market and grow the business. Notes and links to all the resources mentioned are at sidehustlenation.com slash Megan. It's M-E-G-A-N. Let's kick this back uh, to the beginning with the idea, the inspiration to say, I'm going to take a stab at this. I'm going to get started. Well, I always did consignment events for clothing for my kids, mostly just because kids grow out of stuff so quickly. It was a bit of a pain to buy a new wardrobe every season. So I would shop consignment sales and I would sell their old clothes. And it usually ended up kind of making up the difference, which was great. But I I got into it because I was looking for a consignment event to sell home decor and furniture. Some of your own stuff. Yeah, some of my own stuff that I had because I was like, you know, yard sales are the worst. Facebook Marketplace is the worst. And I don't want to donate. I was looking for one to participate in and I couldn't find one in my city. And I really couldn't find one in the country that was a pop-up model. So I talked to a couple of my friends who did other consignment events. And then I actually met with some of the women who run consignment events in town. I just basically asked them like, Hey, is there a reason why this hasn't been done? Is there some like logistical piece that I'm missing? And they were both like, no, you should go for it. So these were the women who were doing the clothing the clothing consignment, yes. And, and you said, well, why is nobody doing this for furniture and home items? Right, because it seemed like an obvious step. Um, and, you know, one of them basically was like, yeah, I have people ask me all the time if I'll sell decor and I just don't have the space. So I kind of just thought, well, you know, I'll try, I'll try one, I'll throw one event and, you know, A, see if it works and B, see if it's fun. And so that's kind of how I got started. I, I threw my first event in November of 2018. And um, I just kind of put up the upfront cost, which wasn't very much. I think it was like 3000 or something like that. And I just said, you know, my goal is to break even. And that's kind of how I got into it. Where did that cost go? This is for like renting space for it? Yeah, I rented a event venue, which previously had held weddings. And they actually had just renovated and they hadn't booked any new events yet. So I kind of went to them and proposed hey, let me rent the space you know, at minimal cost and I'll get a bunch of people in here and they can see the new renovation and all that kind of stuff. So they cut me a deal. I rented it for a week and then I did all my load-in days on the front day, on the front end. Like, you know, I think it was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I had people drop stuff off and we organized it and tagged it and everything. And then Friday night, I did like a sip and see where I let people pay to come just kind of look around. And then I was open Saturday, Sunday. And then we just donated everything that didn't get sold on Sunday afternoon. And we were out on Sunday evening. It was, it was a whirlwind, but it was so much fun. 
Okay, and the people who had dropped off the items, they were okay with that plan? Like, look, if it, if it doesn't sell, then it's just going to Goodwill or whatever. Yeah, they had the option to pick up stuff on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, so a few of them swung back by and said, oh, this was my grandmother's rug or whatever. I can't stand to donate it. But everything else, we just had the local rescue ministry come bring a truck and load it up. So, Okay. Now, so any two-sided marketplace, right? You got to find buyers, you got to find sellers. Let's start with the sellers first in this case. So you got to fill up this uh, venue space, this event space with inventory. How did you go about sourcing people who wanted to get rid of their furniture? The first one, a lot of it just came from friends. And, you know, we've lived in Knoxville a long time. And so I just kind of hit the pavement and got, you know, message everybody I knew and said, Hey, I'm throwing this thing. Like, would you be willing to participate? And I was really actually surprised how easy that part was. Like most everybody has a closet or a basement full of stuff that they aren't using and they would rather have cash for, but they don't actually spend the time to list it on marketplace or have a yard sale. And so most people have some kind of pile in their house of stuff that they want to sell. So that was actually probably the easiest part. I also advertised, I paid the other consignment sales to advertise on their pages. So they already have an audience of people who consign clothing. Surely they would be interested in a crossover. So that definitely helped. Yeah. But I'm, I was surprised at how easy that part of it was. Okay. So you fill up the space. Everybody's like, yeah, I've got, I've got a piece that I I'm trying to get rid of. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm staring at my old desk leaning up against the wall right now. And it's listed on Marketplace and it's listed on OfferUp. And I've got a few people messaging me about it, but nobody, so far, nobody's been committed enough to come by and actually come and grab it. So I, I can see the appeal from there. Was there a target number of items that you were trying to get in the space? That part, especially at the beginning, was was super gut-wrenching and kind of gave me nervous anxiety because <laughs> I just kind of made it up, you know, because I had asked some of the other consignment sales what their inventory goal was, but they're talking about items of clothing on racks. And I'm talking about number of items. One might be a coffee mug and one might be a giant piece of furniture. So I didn't really have a huge way of gauging how much I really needed to begin with. I knew I had about, I think that first one was like 3000 square feet or something like that. And I had people send me pictures of large furniture items for pre-approval, mostly just because I didn't want people to try to drop off junk. And um, I just kind of tried to gauge how much I had. I started planning the sale in the summer and that was also when I started promoting and gaining following and everything on social media. But then I, I personally also just started like collecting stuff. Like I would go to moving sales and buy everything there that I thought was worth anything. I would go to bargain hunt and buy everything there that I thought was worth selling, mostly just because I wanted to pre-fill it with stuff that I thought was cool so that even if everything else that got dropped off was garbage, there would still be fun stuff to find in there. <laughs> and most of that was like, I think I could make a little bit of money on this or definitely at least make my money back. For me, it was money spent and time spent to create a good shopping experience for my first sale. I don't think I ever really did that again as far as pre-shopping for it, but that was kind of my way of 
sneaking good stuff in there, which, you know, I knew I could sell at my cost or more. Yeah. Versus just, I can just imagine a random smattering of the things that just don't, don't go together at all. It's like, okay, now I got to try and stage this and make this look somewhat presentable. The funny thing that happened, and this is a funny story for my first sale was I ended up with like 10 really big, like ceramic roosters. Like somehow some, you know, everybody has one somewhere from somewhere in their family because the nineties happened and everyone had a ceramic rooster. So I ended up with a bunch of them and I was just like, Oh my gosh, what am I going to do with these? Because, you know, now I curate things and I just don't accept things that I don't think will sell. But at that point I was so worried I wasn't going to have enough stuff that I just accepted everything that got dropped off. And so I was going around hiding roosters and putting them under tablecloths because I was just thinking someone's going to walk in here and think, this is crazy. There's so many roosters. <laughs> it's um, a rooster sale. But I'm going to tell you, those roosters were the first thing out the door. And that was my first lesson in not everybody's style is my style. And I'll take your money if you really want that rooster, you know, because it reminds you of your grandmother or whatever. And so that really kind of changed my mind on being super picky because I like my own style. I mean, everybody <laughs> likes their own style, but I can't be yeah. so arrogant as to think that everybody wants to buy what I want to buy. So yeah, you never know. Yeah, you just never know. So, you know, now I kind of try to see the beauty in things that I wouldn't necessarily choose for myself. <laughs> All right. So yeah. you've got the place stocked with a lot of roosters and lots of other items. Yep. How do you get people in the door? I definitely pumped on social media for several months and I got featured on the news and I did some, there's a few pages that feature like events in Knoxville and I got on those pages and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, really it's, it's kind of one of those things where, especially for the first event, it's like, I, you just kind of look around like, well, I hope people show up, you know, and that that's always yeah. going to be the scary part of events period is that even if hundreds of people RSVP and everyone's super excited, actually getting people, to get off their couch and come in the door is a whole other thing, you know, especially post COVID. So this was 2018, but um, the first person that walked in the door that I didn't know, I'd kind of looked at my husband, Austin, and we both just like smiled, like, we don't actually know that person. Like, how did they get yeah. here? <laughs> how did they find out about it? And, you know, bribed a bunch of my friends to come and post and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, that's a cool feeling. I remember that, you know, with the first, you know, blip on the podcast download chart, we were like, I'm reasonably confident that someone I don't know is listening to it. It's kind of like nerve wracking yes, in a way. Same yes. thing with um, like book sales on Amazon. You're like, all right. So I tapped out my network and now it's out in the wilderness and other people are finding it. It's like, well, the doors are open. Hope somebody shows up. Otherwise, we're just going to be hanging. <laughs> Yeah. So. I appreciate you sharing that this was like several months of social media promotion versus like, I'm, I'm going to do this next weekend. Like, okay, no, it, you need some time to plan this and, and do this right to, to follow this kind of pop-up model. Yeah. It, tell me about the local press mention. Like how, how'd you get on their radar? That's pretty cool. There's several, um, there's like the Knoxville guy and then there's a few other websites that do. And I just emailed them and said, Hey, you know, I'm doing this thing. I think it's kind of cool. Would you be willing to put me on your list for this week? Or, you know, and 
So I did that kind of stuff where I just basically cold called people that I knew my target audience would be following. The newscaster, actually, we know through a friend of a friend, and she reached out to me and was like, hey, I'd love to do a local Knoxville shopping feature. And I was like, heck yeah, let's do it, you know? And um, we've done that a few times. There's a Shopper News article that's in Knox News Sentinel that it's been written a few times. And, you know, there's people who are looking for things to write about. It's not like they're chock full of ideas and they can't take any more. <laughs> like if you find the right people who are writing about your business or your area of expertise, then they're going to want more stories. Yeah. And even if it doesn't result in like the, the floodgates opening of sales, it's totally credibility and social proof for next time. Like, oh, as seen on you know, the local NBC affiliate or whatever. Totally. And I always saw it as like, oh, this is content I can put on my socials. You know, I can put the clip from the news on my Instagram. And it's like, even if nobody saw it on the news, then that adds credibility to my Instagram and my Facebook, you know? So, you know, and that's more SEO clicks on Google or whatever. So it all adds up in the end. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. How does the pricing work? Are the people who are bringing the items setting their own price? Do you say, well, I think this is worth X, so I'm going to mark it as this price. And then how do you determine what fees you keep versus what gets passed on to the owner? Right. Originally, I did the 60-40 model where the seller gets 
60%. That's pretty standard for pop-up consignment events. And so I figured it was working for them. And I just kind of took it on and said, hey, I'm going to try this. The option for the seller at that time is to volunteer at the event and then get more commission back, which was super helpful for me at the time because I did not want to pay staff and I definitely needed help at the event. So I did a lot of that starting out where my consigners would volunteer and then they would get 70% or 75%. And then I'm just operating off of the 30%-ish. Pricing, I allow consigners to price their own items. I'm finding now that most people don't want to. They would rather just me do it, which works out for me because, you know, I've developed expertise in that area in my region over the last few years. So it's pretty easy for me to look at something and know how much I could charge for it. And I think, you know, they're incentivized by the fact that I'm incentivized by making more on it. They know I'm not going to price it lower because I'm making a commission of it. So I try to find a sweet spot that's good enough for me and the consigner and also price to sell because sitting on stuff is not good, especially for a pop-up event where I know I'm going to donate it on Sunday if it doesn't sell. (laughs) So I have to, it's easier, it's better for me to sell it at a lower cost than to not sell it. Not to mention, if people show up and the prices are super reasonable, they'll probably show up at the next one. So a lot of that is kind of a experiment where after a while, you kind of just get the hang of it. But I kind of just y- use myself as the standard. Like, well, how much would I pay for this? You know, you get into different areas of niche things like specific China or specific rugs or whatever. And then I just use good old trusty Google, like, well, see if I can find it online and see how much they're charging for it. And then minimize that down to Knoxville, which, you know, people aren't used to paying a lot of money for stuff here. (laughs) So I always joke if I started in Atlanta or Nashville or Brooklyn, I can immediately 10x my prices, but that's just where we are. So (laughs) it works. (laughs) (laughs) regionally adjusted. Yeah, totally. So now when people drop stuff off, I just kind of say, Hey, do you want to price it? Or do you have a minimum that you're wanting to make on it? And then they normally just kind of, kind of leave it up to me. So, okay. Yeah. And then are people paying cash Venmo, uh, the little like square card readers and like, how, how do people pay for this? I do cash Venmo or I do the, I'd have the QuickBooks Intuit reader. And so I take cards as well. Yeah. I'm mostly for my online sales. I did, um, only Venmo because it was just the easiest, but yeah, I take, I take everything. So that wasn't too hard to set up. And then is there a system to track? Well, whose stuff was whose? And now I, I brought in this amount of money. This was the item that sold. Who, now, who, who do I have to pay out on the other end of this? Yeah. So the software that I used for a really long time was my consignment manager software. And that's great for pop-up events, like the ones that I was doing originally. You rent the software for like, I think it's 200 or $250 per event. And it's actually pretty easy to use. I had used it as a seller in other consignment sales. So I was actually pretty used to it. You know, the consigner can log on and type in all of their information and then you print out the tags and then it's it's pretty easy. And then there's a barcode on it. So at checkout, you just scan the barcodes and it tracks everything, which is which is really great. 
you know, the longer I used that software, you know, it was just kind of clunky. And so when I switched to online, I just, it was easier for me since I was doing, so, so what else, I guess I'll explain my transition. Once COVID hit, obviously I'm not hosting large in-person events anymore, right? I was, I was geared for hosting my biggest event ever in spring of 2020. And obviously that got canceled. So I started, I moved to selling things online on my Instagram stories and I would host like one or two sales a month where I would have people submit items. I did only furniture during this time just because it was the easiest to keep track of. So I would list 50 furniture items in my Insta stories at three o'clock on Thursday. So it was a, a scheduled online event and then everything would sell out and then I would do it again in two weeks. And for those I did, I think I did 70, 30 for those because I didn't have any overhead. Um, so those okay. were probably my easiest, lowest risk sales I've ever done because all I was doing was putting in the time and I had already developed my audience from my in-person sales for the past three years. So it was a pretty easy switch to make as far as people were already used to buying stuff from me. People are already used to keeping track of my events. And so I just made them virtual instead. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk about the online side of things. Let's wrap up the this first pop-up event. So yeah. it's three grand for the venue, all this work that went into do you like you comfortable sharing kind of like the bottom line, what shook out at the end of that week? Yeah. So I think I ended up spending about five grand on that event. That was like purchasing computers, purchasing the scanners, purchasing the software, renting tables, renting the event venue and all that kind of stuff. And then I think I ended up profiting like or something, which was a major win for me because I thought, hey, if I can do this and I can break even and I have fun, it's worth it for me. You know, I was coming out of being a stay at home mom for the last six years and I was just looking for some kind of creative outlet. And I knew if I can break even on the first one, then I can make it better the next time and the next time and the next time. So I was thrilled with breaking even and, you know, not losing any money. I then did two or three events a year for the next few years um, and kind of tweaked the process each time. You know, I ended up investing a little bit and purchasing folding tables and that kind of stuff to make it easier long run. Yeah a lot of work that went into it, but it was validation. Like, look, I can do this and it can be profitable. And you can, you know, that was, I think a lot of people would say like, oh man, I put in all this effort and I only made 250 bucks, but you're positioning it the other way. Like, oh no, this is a huge win because it it was proof that I can do it. Yes. And I think the biggest thing for me was I had so much fun. Like, I, I think it was one of the things that I talked about with my husband, Austin, while we were kind of deciding if I was going to do this was like, Hey, you know, I may not even like it. Like before we get too far down the road in this business plan, like let's, let's try it and make sure it's even fun for me. Yeah. There's this pop-up model where it's like, well, I'm only committed to doing this one thing versus, well, now I I just had to sign a a 36 month lease on a, on a storefront or something. Totally. Totally. But it sounds like you've made this transition to doing this online with almost 
no overhead. And this sounds appealing to me. So if I'm looking around and I'm, you know, I, I got to imagine just in our neighborhood, there's a ton of people who probably similarly to your network have stuff that they want to get rid of, but it's a pain to put it on Craigslist, Marketplace, OfferUp, eBay, wherever. Yeah. And like, okay, if somebody else wants to take this pain away from me and I maybe I find them on local Facebook groups or I find them on Nextdoor or whatever mm-hmm. and say like, I'll, I'll do that for you. I'll sell it. I'll take this 70-30 split. Yeah. What is that? I mean, was, was that the pitch? Like, tell me about this uh, transition to online and, and the Instagram growth that maybe fueled that. Obviously, COVID was a big catalyst. I was like, you know, I, I still want to keep up this business. And at first, my online sales were, hey, I just want to stay relevant while we wait this out, right? Because that was the plan originally was, oh, it's only going to be a couple of months. And so I thought, well, I'll just sell stuff online in between so that I stay relevant and keep my audience growth up and all of that. And then it kind of ended up working out really well. So the, the general process was people would send me pictures and measurements and all that kind of stuff through a Google form. And then I would call through all of the applications and pick, you know, 30 to 50 items. And then I would create graphics on Canva that had the price and the measurements and a couple of pictures and all that kind of stuff. So each item got one graphic on my Insta story. And then I would put together like a sneak peek image and post that and promote it and all that kind of stuff. And then on, you know, most of the time it was Thursdays at two because my kids were napping and we were all home. And so I would drop it during nap time and then people would just respond, you know, sold or I want this or I want more information. And it was just first come first serve. And so it was labor intensive on the direct messages side of things, but I just kept, I just kept Excel sheets and it, and it really wasn't that hard. You know, you just answer messages in the order you receive them and I would have wait lists for each item. So if somebody already claimed it, but you wanted it, then you knew that, you know, you were next on the list. So people were rewarded by being on time. Okay. That way it's kind of fair for everybody, you know, nobody's sneaking in under the radar. And that was one thing that I found was people would get frustrated if they felt like it wasn't a fair process, you know, because at a shop, it's like you show up and you see the item and you buy it. You're not worried about somebody buying it next door to you, you know, so... Then the people would pay in advance full price on Venmo. Um, I would kind of hold the money in escrow because um, one of the things that's annoying about Facebook Marketplace is, you know, how do you get paid and do you do cash? And it was COVID and all the things. And people was don't... Was this actual escrow or is this kind of just your default? Like, I'm not going to go out and spend this money. It yet. was my Venmo balance. <laughs> it was <Okay>. not... <laughs> It was not actual escrow. I just use that as a term because people understand it. Sure, sure. Yeah. So that way, if you know you pay up front, you're incentivized to pick up the item as soon as possible. And then if you know, I so then I once the item was paid for, I would connect the buyer and the seller through Instagram direct messages. So it would be a group message between me and the buyer and the seller. So I would monitor the process you know, making sure everybody's being cool and nobody's being shady and all that kind of stuff. And then they would arrange a time and a place to pick up or drop off. And I never even saw the item most of the time. You never had to touch the inventory. That's so cool. I never even touched it. And so, you know, there was a few times where 
somebody shows up and it's not at all what they thought. And so they get their money back and it's not a big deal. You know, there's, it's no skin off my back. And I had a growing list of people that I either did not sell from or did not sell to just because they made somebody uncomfortable or so it was a, it was a safe environment for people because I curated a community that behavior was monitored. And so it was similar to Facebook marketplace in model, but I took out the pain points, which was meeting a stranger. Nobody knows what's going on. You know, I, I kind of, me being in the group chat with people, you know, kind of made people be on their best behavior. And so it kind of worked out for everybody. Um, I never really had a situation where I had to be rude to somebody, you know, it, it was just like, Hey, you know, this was broken. So I'm going to give the person their money back and you can figure out what you want to do with that thing. You know, I, it's not sitting in my garage, so I don't have to worry about it. It's sitting in their garage, you know? Um, so for, I guess it was, a year or a year and a half, that's all I did was I did one or two sales a month of just Instagram story sales. And then, you know, after a few days, you discount the items and I would have an, a highlight with available pieces. So, you know, after the 24-hour story cycle, everything gets deleted. So I would leave things in my available highlights so people can come back and shop whenever they're ready and all of that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at, so this is uh, at Pineapple Consignment on Instagram. Yeah. And you know, you're a little over 6,000 followers at this point, which in, I mean, I don't want to make light of that at all because that's like 6,000 actual right. people who are, it sounds are very local, very engaged. Yeah. But in the world of Instagram, like, it's not a huge following. No, it is um, not. <laughs> it is a humble, I have a humble little page for sure. And, and so that's really impressive that you're not only getting... Uh, people are feeding you inventory through here, or, or are there other other ways that you're sourcing products to sell? No, I mean mostly it's through my Instagram or you know through my email. Like people f- find my email, you know, people give their grandma my email or whoever. You know, it's it's still very word of mouth. I advertise on Facebook and Instagram very occasionally, but I have found that. You know, I kind of said this earlier, but I have kind of found that sourcing inventory was kind of the least of my problems. You know, the beginning, it was space. It was how do I find space to put things, you know? And then when it was online, it was how do I create the shopping experience that's enjoyable for people online without bombarding them with images of things, you know? And then now, you know, I've got a permanent location in November of last year. I just rented a, a small little, you know, it's basically a glorified storage unit. It's only like, you know, 1,500 square feet. Um, but I just found that I, I had clients that had a large amount of things and they didn't want to wait two months for my next sale to drop it off. You know, that's, that's kind of one thing that I ran into with the pop-ups was people would want to sell something through me, but they were like, Hey, I'm moving this weekend. Like I need it gone. Okay. I got to get it out. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had to say no to a lot of inventory because I just physically didn't have a space. So to transition into kind of what I'm doing now, I started by doing several estate sales 
where I would basically just run an estate sale in the client's home and um, use my audience to market and sell that. And then there was a few times that I did something similar, but I just did it out of a storage unit. So I rented a storage unit and filled it with stuff from one or two clients and just sold it online out of the storage unit because I knew that they're the quantity and the quality of their items would be worth it me for me financially to move and store the items. You know, it was a high-end client that I just didn't want to say no to because I didn't have the space. So a lot of what I do now is not necessarily group sales where let's say a hundred people drop off five items each. Now a lot more of what I do is I'll have three clients who have almost a whole house full of stuff. And I've found that that's a lot more of the need right now, mostly just because the housing market in Knoxville is so insane and everybody is moving and everybody is buying. So most people are downsizing or... So now a lot of my clients come from kind of the older generation and then a lot of my shoppers are from my generation. So... Okay. Is it estate sales? Is it moving sale? Is it just trying to like, is it connection with realtors? Like how are you, how do you break into that? All of the above, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it was a natural progression just from word of mouth over the last few years where it's like, hey, you know, my mom is downsizing and she's got tons of great stuff. You know, would you be willing to sell the stuff for her? And then, you know, I, I did enough free consultations where I go to the person's house and they've got amazing stuff. And I'm like, well, how, you know, how am I going to, what am I going to do? You know, I've got to figure out how to sell this stuff because it's amazing. And now what I do is, you know, somebody will call me like I have a client right now who is downsizing and I had a consultation with her right before Christmas and I went over there and kind of walked through and she kind of told me, you know, the stuff that she's keeping and the stuff she's wanting to get rid of. And I'm going to go over to her house next week, I think, with a moving truck. And I basically walk through her house and I point to stuff that I want. I say, I want this, 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 and this. And we load up a truck and I take it to my store and then I sell it. And so I don't deal with everything that's left over. And I don't deal with the stuff that she wants to keep. And then I actually invoice my clients for the moving expenses. So they pay moving expenses. And then I just go in and pick what I want. And it's great for them because they're able to basically get rid of a lot of their quality stuff that they wanted to sell. I mean, they don't have to worry about moving it and selling it themselves. And then I just send them a check. And it kind of works out for everybody um, because they're able to get cash for stuff that they have that is worth something and they don't have to physically deal with it. Yeah. It's a win-win. Yeah. And I have other, you know, companies that I recommend for organizing and packing and moving and all that kind of stuff. But I've really niched down to where I only buy and sell furniture and home decor. I don't do any of the other stuff. I just found that estate sales, when you do a whole house worth of items and you're dealing with like clothes and Tupperware and shoes and basketballs and skis. And it's like all that kind of stuff. It's just very time consuming. And the people who do that do a really good job at it. And I just kind of realized that's not me. I need to focus on what I'm good at, which is like curating furniture and home decor and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, so now I've got 
I've got my shop. You know, I call it a shop. It's really a storage unit, but there's parking, so I can invite shoppers in when when I'm ready. And um, now it I, says by appointment only. So you're not camping out there all day. No, 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 no. I let people shop and drop off by appointment, and then I'm open one week in a month. So that way, people can come in on Saturday. And the idea of it, I've only been open a couple months, so I'm still kind of figuring out the flow. But the idea is that I fill up the shop. And then I'm open on a weekend and I empty out the shop and then I repeat the process again. Um, I still sell, sell stuff online in between every once in a while just because it's fun and it's easy, but it's a lot easier for me to kind of do it on my own time and on my client's schedule, you know, because I have a lot of people who are like, hey, I have to move out on this specific Tuesday. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, I'll book a truck and I'll see you then. And it's not right. My lease is ending or my, you know, the contract closing date is here. Yeah, I got to get out. Yeah. Exactly. So, so now I try to schedule things out in advance. So it's easier for me to manage my flow of inventory because my shop is so small. I obviously can't take on, I can't have everybody drop off on the same day. You know, I've got to have time to sell stuff and get it out of there and make more space. So, so now the trick, you know, my next kind of growing pain is figuring out how to manage the flow of inventory so that it makes sense. And so that I have time to sell it and it has time to get picked up. Um, Now that I don't have to donate everything on Sunday, um, you know, it used to be like, Hey, if you're going to buy this, it has to be out of here by the end of the day. Otherwise, you know, (laughs) I, I, it's got to get out of here one way or the other. Yeah. So now I have a little bit more flexibility for pickup, which is great for people who are, you know, buying a huge credenza and they're like, well, I don't have a truck. I've got to go get one. And it's like, well, great. Now, you know, we can make an appointment for you to pick it up next week, but then you have to be on them to actually pick it up <laughs> because yeah. I need the floor space. So, you know, there's with each level of growth, there's different growing pains, but um, it's, it's, fun problems to have, as I say. Totally. More with Megan in just a minute, including the specific Instagram growth strategies she's used to build such a strong and engaged following. But first, let me take a moment to thank our sponsor, FreshBooks. Megan and I will be the first to tell you there's a lot to love about being your own boss, but trying to figure out your financials all on your own probably isn't one of those things. Luckily, there's FreshBooks. This is the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for side hustlers, service providers, and business owners like you. FreshBooks takes all of the not-so-fun parts of running a business, like building and tracking invoices, managing online payments, organizing your expenses, and it automates and simplifies those with features like the new digital bills and receipts scanner, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process. FreshBooks shines all year round, but especially at tax time. With a ton of helpful reports to choose from, you're going to know exactly where your business stands so you can easily hand over the keys to your accountant and they can take over when it's time to reconcile everything for the year. Give FreshBooks a try for free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash side hustle to get started today. Once again, that's freshbooks.com slash side hustle. What are you going to do with that extra 11 hours a week? Now I had to look up the Knoxville population yeah. to get a gauge of, of this following, right? So it was 186,000, according to Google. And so you got over 2% of the population like following you. So like, okay, that puts it in perspective. Like, oh, a lot of people in town, no pineapple consignment. Yeah. Do you have like, I don't know, two or three Instagram growth strategies that really moved the needle there for you? Like, how'd you become the go-to person for furniture sales? Yeah. Um, 
That's really sweet that you say that because it is funny when you put it in perspective like that. I actually had never really thought about it in that way. Um, I would say my the things that have really moved the needle are consistency. You know, everybody says that. I've done a few giveaways that have been huge for me where I've actually given away like a nice piece of furniture. Like I... I would buy something on Facebook Marketplace. Like I, a couple of times I've gotten, you find a set of like, let's say, the, I'll just use a specific example. The first time I did a big giveaway, I found a set of mid century modern bedroom furniture. And it was like a bed and like three, like two dressers and like two nightstands. So I, let's say I paid 500 for the whole set. So I broke it off into pieces and I sold the individual pieces and then I kept the nicest piece, which was a, they call it a tall boy, like a tall dresser that was mid-century modern that I probably could have sold for like 600, but because just by all by itself, just all by itself, but I gave it away because it was the most valuable piece. I just did a giveaway on Instagram and people went crazy. Like, oh, you're so generous giving this away. And I was like, well, actually, I technically got it for free because I sold off the other pieces to cover my cost. It was worth it to me to to give something away that people were actually excited about. Because I think giveaways on Instagram, sometimes it's like, okay, but it would be worth it for me to just go buy that. You know, it's not really, you know, when you're talking about 50 bucks or whatever, it's just not. So I think also, giveaways on Instagram can be really oversaturated where there's so many going on at once. You just kind of get over it and you just don't even enter them anymore. So I wanted to do something that was pretty big. Yeah, attention getting. How did you run, like, or what was the, what did people have to do to enter? Just like tag tag two friends yeah, and follow the account? Yeah, it was pretty like, basic. It was like, follow me and tag three friends and save the post or something. I th- actually think at that point, saving the post wasn't even a thing. I, I do that now. But yeah, I mean, I think that first one, I think I gained like a thousand followers or something, which at that time was huge for me. I mean, at the time now, that would still be huge for yeah, me. That's, so, yeah, that's awesome. you know, in about a week. Um, and then I've, I've done that maybe two or three times since then where I've given away a piece of furniture and, you know, it's, it's really fun. And I've done a few with, you know, you team up with other local, um, accounts that are of the same size or maybe a little bit bigger than yours. And you guys can both do it together and it, it creates crossover and all of that. Um, and so I, I try to just post consistently and have fun and, you know, hope that the product that I'm selling is quality enough that people will come no matter, you know, it's like they're going to try to find me. I don't have to work so hard to make sure that I'm finding them. Well, especially if you have it structured as a consistent event, like, hey, show up Thursday afternoons, we're going to do this live sale. If you want first crack at this stuff, you got to you got to be there. You got to be paying attention. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the time story, now it's reels and everything else, but at the time stories were like, "Oh, you really want people to watch your stories because that increases engagement." And it kind of just worked out for me that that was the um tool on Instagram that worked the best for selling items one at a time, you know, because I've known a lot of pages who sell items like in each post. And it just clogs up your feed and it's hard to really find the right information. So I found that keeping it in stories kept it separate enough, but easy to find. And, you know, when I would have, 
two or 3,000 people viewing my stories in a day, that really increases engagement overall, you know, or people who are clicking through 50 stories, you know, the algorithm is automatically going to put me to the front of their feed anyway. No, that doesn't make sense. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and that people are paying attention to this because they're interested in what you have and then... Because they're paying attention to it, it shows it to other people. Totally. And yeah, it just keeps that flywheel spinning. Yeah. Well, Megan, so you you mentioned, hey, I was a stay-at-home mom prior to doing this stuff. What's the extra income meant to you? Do you have the kids involved in the business? What's What's the impact? The number one impact for me has been my mental health, which is, you know, invaluable. Before I was a mom, I was a stylist and I did um, mostly production work. So I was used to being part of a creative collaborative, you know, I did hair, makeup, wardrobe, all of that. And so I really missed having uh, a creative outlet and it worked really well for me to be quote unquote, just a stay at home mom for a certain number of years. And then I felt like it started to affect my mental health. So that was when I started looking for a creative outlet. So it was, you know, the side hustle for the income, but it really started as me just needing something that was out outside of my identity as a mom. So I would say, first, that's been the biggest um, help to me and my family is just that, you know, I'm having fun. I'm more joyful. I'm more sane because I have this mental creative outlet. Um, But then I would say originally, you know, and because I didn't make that much for a long time, that's kind of what it was for the first few years. It was like something fun that mommy does on the side that fulfills me as a person. And, you know, I have so many funny videos of the kids running around in warehouses and me, you know, trying to move furniture by myself and, you know, all of that. And one of the biggest impacts I think it's had on my kids was, I think it was my second or third sale and Austin picked up Salem, my now oldest, she was in kindergarten at the time from school and brought her by the event. And I had, you know, this big retail counter set up with all these, I had this like balloon arrangement and it looked really official. And Salem came and sat behind the register and she was like, mom, is this your chair? And I was like, oh yeah. And she was like, so you're the boss? And I was like, uh, yeah, I guess I am. And you could just see that, that, that was so meaningful for me as a mom and as a woman to be able to show that to my daughter, like, you know, you can create something and you can become the boss and you can create something that you love. And so watching my kids watch me has been very powerful for me. And, you know, now we drive by my shop on their way to school every day and they say, Oh, there's mommy's shop, you know? And so that's just, that's just fun for me. And, um, financially, you know, the last two years I've been paying for my kids tuition. They go to a private school and, um, we just kind of, even before COVID had kind of decided that that was the best thing for us. And then it's been confirmed over the last few years, but you know, that's the biggest bill in our household is that tuition. And that's what pineapple is responsible for. And so it's been huge to be able to provide that for my kids. Wow. That's, that's awesome to be able to zero that out. Yeah. And and just to have them, you just paying attention to like, Oh, what is, what does mommy do? What does daddy do? Yeah. Like I was, (laughs) this is unrelated. I was putting on 
a collared shirt the other day for some reason. And my six-year-old is like, are you trying to pretend to be normal? I was like, oh, buddy, it's going to take a lot more than a, than a collared shirt, but <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you. Every time I put makeup on, my boys are like, but where are you going? And I'm like, I don't have to, because ha- most of the time, even when I'm in the shop, I just have my pajamas on because I'm like, it's freezing in there and I'm just moving stuff around and nobody's there but me. And so, yeah, it's it's a clue if mommy puts makeup on that something adult Something's is about to happen. <laughs> Yeah. What anything you would do differently if you had to start over? Oh gosh. You know, I really don't think so. I mean, there's a few people I wouldn't have worked with and there's a few like negotiations I maybe would have changed, but the reality is, you know, this is super cheesy and probably what a lot of people say, but it's like I've learned from each of those experiences and each of those partnerships. And one of the things that I said from the beginning was, if I get to where I want to go, I want to do it because I was generous. And so I've tried to be really generous with all of my partnerships and making sure that I'm paying people fairly and not trying to screw people over. You know, it's like, if if I get wherever it is that I'm trying to go, let's say I'm trying to build like a million dollar business, which, you know, would be awesome, but whatever. If I get there, I want to get there because I was generous. And so there's a few times where I lost money on something because I cared more about the person that was buying it than the actual thing. And it's like, whatever, you know, it's like, I think at the end of the day, it, it all evens out. Where do you see it going or where do you want to take it this year? Oh man. Um, Opening the shop has been probably the biggest stretch on like my time and resources. And so it's still a little bit hard for me to kind of dream and think big picture because I'm still so in the trenches of just getting it up and running in, in the current model. But, um, you know, I've had a lot of interest in Nashville. And so I've thought about expanding into Nashville, um, which would start by online. I would start doing online sales for the Nashville area. I have yeah. a lot of friends and family there. And, you know, I actually have a consultation there in a couple of weeks where one of my mother-in-law's friends called me and said, I've got a storage unit full of stuff. And I'm like, sure, I can drive over there. It's only two and a half hours away from where I am now. So that gives you context. And we're there a lot anyway, because all of our family is there. So that's something that I've thought about doing. I would like to get a bigger shop eventually and be able to host more often and all that kind of stuff. But I really don't ever see myself being a standard eight to five open all the time shop. You know, I just don't really feel like the model allows for that. And there's something about event-based shopping that gets people so excited. It's why people go to estate sales on the weekends. It's not because they know they're going to find something awesome. Like when they go to Target, it's because it's fun and you never know what you're going to find. Yeah. It's a treasure hunt. There's like built-in scarcity. And it's, if I don't get there at 9am, everything's going to be gone. So you have to get there at 9am. And so I, I really like you know, hospitality is something that's really important to me, which is why I named my company Pineapple because it's the international symbol for hospitality. But, you know, creating these events that are fun. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. That- <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, if you're traveling and you see a pineapple somewhere, it means there's probably a place to stay or you know somewhere you can get huh. some food to eat, which I grew up in ministry. So we always traveled a lot. And I always loved that idea that even if you don't speak the language, you look for a pineapple. Okay. There's a little bit of trivia. Okay. So anyway, yeah, I just, I, I still see event-based retail in my future for sure. I don't see that changing. It's just maybe broadening it or um, diversifying to different cities and all that kind of stuff. So, Very cool. And Megan, this has been awesome. I uh, appreciate you sharing all this stuff. I like this geographic expansion, especially if you never have to touch the inventory. Yeah. Like, okay. You build up an audience in Nashville and start doing these online sales at Pineapple Consignment on Instagram. You can follow along over there, pineappleconsignment.com as well. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. I don't even know where I heard this. So I'm not going to claim that it was mine, but it was follow the fun. You know, I've said before, if I'm not having fun, it's not worth doing it. And so whatever side hustle it is that you're doing, make sure that you're actually having fun doing it because that's the most sustainable part of your business is the fact that you enjoy doing it. Because if you enjoy doing it, then you're going to be able to expand and do it more and more and more often. So if it's not fun, then maybe find a different side hustle. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. I mean, the last thing you need is a second job that you start to dread working on. So follow totally, the fun. Totally. The same thing with the side hustle show in its very early days. Like, yeah, there was a little bit of traction and you know it was motivating to see the chart go up and to the right. right. But in terms of dollars and cents, like, yeah, it's probably hard to justify spending so much time on it, but it turned out to be a lot of fun. Right. So follow that fun. Appreciate you sharing that. A couple just notes for me here, you know, the ability to start low risk. If you can source yes. this inventory, if you can build this following, um, maybe through these strategic intentional giveaways, I thought that was a really cool tactic. And then it's, you know, if it sells, it sells and you pass the proceeds along to the seller and you keep your margin and you're off to the races there. Totally. I like this call to find a creative outlet, something that scratches that itch if you're not getting that at your day job. And that was what blogging was for me for a, for a lot of years. Like, well, like I, I like to write, so let me practice doing this. Right. Let me figure out how WordPress works. And I also like this call to have a income target or maybe an expense target that you're trying to make go away, trying to zero out. I like this call, like, could I zero out the kids' private school tuition? And it's like, yeah, for us, it's like you know, daycare or, you know, kids preschool. It's like, it's a pretty big line item on the budget. It's like, okay, if we can zero that out with some kind of side hustle income, I really uh, like that call. Because a lot of people, I want to replace my day job salary. I want to, you know, cover our mortgage. Like, well, are there, we call it the side hustle snowball. Are there smaller expenses that would allow you to celebrate some wins along the way? So I, I definitely like that one. Well, and I will add, you know, my business is actually a side hustle for a lot of other people. You know, and it, my interest in consignment started because I used other consignment sales as a side hustle to sell and buy new clothes for my kids because I knew I needed new clothes for my kids. So I have people that, you know, local thrifters or whatever that go to Goodwill and pick out stuff and then upsell it in my shop. And so I am their side hustle. And so it's fun because oh, okay. it all, you know, if you're looking to get into the consignment business, you know, start by actually being a consigner and experiencing it through that way, because you, it's, it's surprising how much money you can get for stuff that you already have in your house, your closet. So yeah, figure out what can sell, what doesn't, what's popular. Oh, I like it. Yeah. 
For sure. Well, very good. And notes and links to all the resources mentioned in this episode are at sidehustlenation.com slash Megan, again, M-E-G-A-N, or you can follow the link in the episode description of your podcast app to get over there. Make sure to hit the follow button or the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Big thanks to Megan for sharing her insight. Thanks to FreshBooks for sponsoring this week. When you hit up freshbooks.com slash side hustle, you'll be able to start your 30-day free trial of the number one invoicing and accounting solution for side hustlers and freelancers everywhere. That is it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.